Well, this morning we're going to spend some time together looking at our psalm appointed for today, Psalm 92. And as we look at Psalm 92, just sort of uh, broad strokes, the entirety of the psalm, all 15 verses, is bound up in a call to worship and is itself worship of Yahweh Most High, Yahweh Elion. And here in this particular psalm, I think we can talk about the, the fact that the psalmist declares worship of Yahweh, of God, for what God has done, for the works of his hand. Now, I want to draw your attention just to a couple of uh, details here in the psalm itself that I think are important for us to understand who it is that, is, that the psalmist is worshiping and, and why it is the psalmist is, is worshiping. And then I want to spend the majority of our time together uh, this morning considering uh, a, a, a very specific aspect of this particular psalm. As we look at the psalm together, let's first notice what we might call the temporal aspect or the temporal setting. This psalm was written for a specific purpose and for a specific use within the worship life of the people of Israel. If you have your English Bibles open, whether you're using the English Standard Version or whether you're using the NIV or the King James, uh, maybe you're using an app uh, on your phone and not Facebook on your phone right now as I gaze out upon you and I see the screen reflecting on Don's glasses, I can tell what you're doing there, Don. You'll notice that right next to the numbers, 92, there's what we call a subscription. It says, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It's fitting, then, that this is a particular psalm giving praise to Yahweh Elion as creator on the Sabbath. Fitting, because as we read in Genesis chapters 1 and chapter 2, God, having completed his work of creation, rested. Having done the work of creation in six days, the triune God rested on the seventh day as we read in the Genesis account. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And that Sabbath principle isn't just grounded in creation. Rather, it is shared through the life of Israel. As God called Israel, as he formed Israel out of Egypt and gave them the law at the, at the Mount of Sinai, he gave them this law which included in the Ten Commandments the law to keep the Sabbath day holy. Why? Because God the Creator, Yahweh Elion, Yahweh Most High, rested on the Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath day, it is God as Creator who is to be worshipped and praised and rested in more than just a simple day off it was to be a day of worship and recreation a day of honoring god as holy and so psalm 72 is is very much geared toward the sabbath and it establishes the root and the foundation of worship to be the works of yahweh the most high yahweh Elion. What are his works that he is going to be worshipped for? In, in verse 4, you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. I think the works of the Lord here are two things. One, his original creation. And then second, his recreation of a people. 
As we see here, the, the, the purpose of the praise and the worship is to declare the steadfast love, the faithfulness of God. And as we've said before in previous sermons, the steadfast love of God is always shown in action, in working. And so in this psalm, we have these, these themes of God most high, Yahweh most high, the creator being worshipped for that which he does and who he is and that which he will do in recreating. The second uh, sort of uh, preliminary detail I, I really would like to point out this morning is that, that we have here a very specific naming of the deity, of the God who will be worshipped. As we know in our English translations, in the Old Testament, anytime you see the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters, that is the way that the English translators often treat the name Yahweh, the name of God. In the scriptures, Yahweh functions something like the personal name of the triune God, revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It means, I am who I am, and it refers to God's eternal and self-existent being as God. It refers to him as creator. And here in this particular psalm, however, the, the psalmist adds sort of a title. Not only is he Yahweh, but he is also Yahweh most high. In Hebrew, the term Elyon, E-L-Y-O-N. And this is important, I think, because he is describing Yahweh as set apart from every other so-called deity that may be worshipped. This is declared that he will worship and praise Yahweh Elyon, Yahweh Most High. It is declared in the midst of a pagan culture filled with pantheons and filled with choices. You see, a, a common word for deity in Canaan was the word El, simply translated as God, El, E-L. And there was an El Elyon in the uh, Canaanite pantheon. El Elyon was the chief god, the creator of the world. And here our psalmist is declaring, there is no other Elyon but Yahweh Elyon. Elyon, who is Yahweh, he is the one we will worship in truth. He is the one who has created. So with those two details... Right, geared towards the Sabbath, worshiping Yahweh Elyon above and before any other deity, worshiping Yahweh Elyon for his works of creation and his works of recreation on the day set apart for worship. Let's turn then to this, uh, some of the particular parts or perhaps even the peculiar parts of this psalm. In the middle of this particular psalm of praise and worship, we read some really weird things, don't we? I loved how Nancy read it this morning. The, how great are your works, O Lord? Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. A fool cannot understand this. The psalmist, echoing so much of Scripture, divides all of created humanity into two basic groups. Those who worship Yahweh and those who do not. And these two groups have different present tense and these two groups have a different future tense. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever, for behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. And it can be a bit shocking, uh, perhaps offensive even, to hear Scripture refer to someone as stupid. 
And let, let's spend a little bit of time unpacking this. If you have the King James translation of the Bible, look up Psalm 92 later, and what you'll find is that in place of the word stupid, you'll find the word brutish. And brutish uh, perhaps captures more of the original Hebrew nuance. You see, brutish in the original Hebrew, that word that is translated in English as brutish was typically applied to animals. And so here we see an animal who is brutish. An animal has a particular way of being, a particular way of living. An animal lacks an ability to have really anything, what I would call multidimensional thinking. An animal can only really think about a few handful of things, an urge for self-preservation, which includes eating, and an urge for uh, duplication, which includes mating, and an urge uh, to have a comfy place to sleep. That's really all an animal can think about. And when applied to a human being, this idea of being brutish is a person who's been created by God, made in the very image of God, but who lives apart from God and so is animal-like in their behavior, in their thinking. A few commentators refer to them as people who live according to their animal nature. They, they make up this Latin term for them. They call them homo brutus, so to speak, who live according to their carnal natures, concerned only with themselves and with their desires. For an animal, they are the center of their being. And for a brutish human being, they are the center of their being. And here in Psalm 92, a brutish person, an animal man, a beast man, cannot fathom the greatness of God's actions. They cannot plumb the depths of Yahweh's thoughts. And so they cannot recognize that all the while evildoers, evil workers, look like they're flourishing and prospering. In the end, they will be judged and destroyed while Yahweh Elion rules forever. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, those are those who receive divine favor from God and thus receive future tense vindication from him. Look at verse 10. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You've poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. These are that second group of humans, a second group of uh, created people. They are created humans who have come to know Yahweh as Elion and have received the outworking of his steadfast love. They've received the grace that he's poured out upon them. They have received his actions of deliverance. Delivered from the hands of evil, they've received divine favor. And the entirety of the Bible is essentially the record of God's saving acts on behalf of sinful humanity. In the Old Testament, we read of God's working out of salvation for his people Israel by his right hand, by his holy arm, by his power and the exercise of his dominion, by the exercise of his strength, God has subdued his enemies and won his victory. And in his loving kindness to his people Israel, he saved. These Old Testament deliverances are but shadows of the great deliverance to come, the great deliverance and victory in Jesus. And so we say then that the sending of the Son is the steadfast love of God in action. In Jesus' crucifixion and death and his resurrection, which culminate in his ascension, 
God worked out salvation and deliverance to continue the work of applying salvation. The Holy Spirit was sent upon all who would believe. And so there is nothing more to be done. This divine favor, this grace of deliverance is for this life and results in vindication rather than damnation in the next, in the forever that is to come. It's probably best to read the last few verses of Psalm 92 as an already not yet reality. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. In this life, there are tangible results of being a worshiper of Yahweh Elion. There's a difference in being as men and women and children come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and adopted into God's family. And so it can be said that already men and women and children who believe in Jesus are planted in the very house of the Lord in his very presence. And yet while we worship God for who he is and what he has done, we also worship with anticipation of what he will do. At the time in which evil will be judged and destroyed, the righteous in Jesus Christ will be vindicated. To use the word picture of this particular psalm, the grass will be burned, the trees will, be bear, will bear fruit, and so because of what he will do, his acts of creation and recreation, Yahweh Elion is worthy to be worshipped. That's the whole of the psalm. Before our time remaining this morning, I'd really like for us to focus upon this idea of the animal brute, this idea of the stupid, the brutish, the beast man. Certainly, we recoil at the language used. Stupid and fool, and, and certainly we take offense at the suggestion that we human beings who consider ourselves to be the center of the universe could in some way be no better off than the cow that's contentedly chewing its cud on the way to the slaughterhouse, unknowingly and yet willingly marching off to its own death to become cheeseburgers in car seats. <laughs> Certainly we're better than that, aren't we? But what if we're programmed to be skeptical of anything beyond that which we can perceive through our senses? And what if we are programmed, what if it's part of our DNA, so to speak, to live as though we are the center of our reality? What if we're programmed to think that I am able to define for myself what is good and what is right and what is holy, and how dare you say anything otherwise? What if I'm programmed that way internally? And then what if I am pressed by what is external to me to think in that exact same way? Talk about a feedback loop where my external culture dictates to me what I'm supposed to be, but what it dictates to me about what I'm supposed to be is what I already want to be myself. Human beings are natural-born sinners conditioned to see and think in a very specific way because we're curved in upon ourselves. And then we are conditioned to think and to see in a very specific way by the cultures that surround us 
And so we aren't much different than the beast which is concerned only with itself, only with its needs and its desires, unable, we are unable to really think beyond ourselves. We are natural-born sinners who live in a disenchanted reality. A natural-born sinner who lives in a disenchanted reality does not see, is not able to see the work of God around. A natural-born sinner who lives in a disenchanted reality without the transcendent cannot fathom the depth of God's works. We cannot plumb the depths of his thoughts. In his book, Recapturing the Wonder, Pastor Mike Cosper talks about the conditioning that the world impresses upon us when he writes, I am programmed to expect that the world is what I see, touch, and measure, a deeply ingrained posture actually suspicious of any kind of religious experience. We need to recognize this, folks, that as a result of this programming, as a result of the expectation that only that which can be experienced through the senses or valued from within as defined by the self, we got to be aware of what the world's doing to us. Cosper goes on to write, This is an age where our sense of spiritual possibility, transcendence, and the presence of God has been drained out. What's left is a spiritual desert. This way of seeing the world is what Charles Taylor calls disenchantment. And a disenchanted world has been drained of magic, of any supernatural presences of spirits and God and transcendence. As ourselves, our natural-born selves, we cannot fathom what God is and does. And then we have a world that drains the presence of God out of it so we can't see him at work. Are we any better off than a beast? These eyeglasses that the cultures put upon us, far from being rose-colored, are actually blinders that preclude us from being able to see the works of God, His mighty deeds. We naturally do not and cannot recognize the works of God's hands, and we are born into a disenchanted reality that is in rebellion against its creator. So much of our modern world is, as philosopher Philip Reef has said, a vast grievance procedure against highest authority actively working against higher authority, actively working to dispossess us of a recognition of higher authority. And as Reef continues, the first dispossession of his, is the whole notion of being in the image of God. Natural-born sinners robbed of transcendence, robbed of a deeper magic, robbed of a true understanding of being created in the image of God, geared to reject Him and to be blind to Him, Brutus homo, indeed. And yet all the while, we seemingly recognize at some chromosomal level, perhaps, that something is missing. We yearn for transcendence. We long for something that is beyond us and bigger than us. And so we go about pouring ourselves into things to give us meaning and purpose, to give us a feeling of being able, of being a part of something more. We go about pouring ourselves into things that give us physical pleasure. We feed our faces. We look for warm places to sleep. Sounds an awful lot like an animal. And sometimes we even pour ourselves into things that will give us physical pain in order to scratch a metaphysical itch that we just can't get to. This strikes me as going a long way to help us understand the stupid fool, the animal brute blockhead 
of Psalm 92. As commentator Willem van Gemmeren has no mentioned, the fool is like a wild beast as an animal shows no perception or analytic ability, so the fool has no common sense. He begins and ends with himself without any respect for God. In his insensitivity to God and lack of discernment, he is a brute. Once upon a time, a brother and sister clasped hands and strode out of the white mountains, across green hills, and into a large and wonderful wood. Given the free gift of lot to live in the forest and to eat of the fruit of the trees, Hansel and Gretel were incredibly happy, perhaps for the first time in their lives. But one day, while out gathering berries, a brown rabbit ran across the path. Hansel felt his legs twitch. Before he knew it, he was pursuing the rabbit through the underbrush. When he returned to their clearing where they had set up camp, Hansel dropped the body of the rabbit at the feet of Gretel. And she was upset because he had killed an animal. He had broken a rule of the forest. And Hansel felt bad, promising to never do it again. But the next day, Hansel saw the most beautiful fawn he couldn't help it. In a flash, he lit off after the frightened creature. And when he returned to the clearing with the fawn, Gretel was even more upset and Hansel was even more remorseful. And again, he promised to never do it again. But the next day, while he was picking berries, Hansel saw a white dove. As the sun set that evening, Hansel walked back into the clearing, exhausted but as happy as a sated wolf. Blood covered his arms and his face. He had carried in his hands the broken, eviscerated carcass of the white dove. Gretel screamed at him. And Hansel, not feeling quite as bad as before, left the clearing and walked back into the woods. Gretel didn't see much of Hansel after that. And when she caught glimpses of him, he was more beast than boy. She found dead animal carcasses throughout the forest and heard howling noises. And the last time she saw her brother... When she offered him some berries and nuts, he snarled at her. The natural human condition, beast-like. Externally, given the freedom to express internally what is there, we become animals, beasts, a stupid fool. And if this is the natural human condition, Beast men, natural-born sinners curved in upon the self and a condition to live without God. What is the solution? We need to be changed from the inside out. It was Hansel's heart that led him to beastness, and so it is Hansel's heart that must be changed. It is our heart that leads us to sin, and so it is our heart that needs to be changed. We need rescue from one mightier than ourselves. We need the rescue of the creator, Yahweh Elion, who is alone able to save because he alone is able to recreate. We need someone to work in us, to remove the blinders from our eyes, to soften our hearts, to turn us from beasts to men. We need the rescue work of Yahweh Elion to give us a new way to be human, to change us from homo brutus to homo novus. And this is the gospel, that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
That Yahweh, Elion, eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has entered into his creation in a specific, active, and triune way. The Father sent the Son, the Holy Spirit was sent, the entirety of the scriptures that record for humanity God's gracious intervention in this fallen world to save, to recreate, because they record the sending of the Son and the Spirit for that very purpose. Early one morning, Gretel saw a hunting party led by a duke enter into the forest. They found no animals except for one, the beast who was Hansel. After a tremendous and thrilling chase through the forest, Hansel found himself across a small stream from the duke. And Hansel watched, almost affixed, as the duke, sitting astride his horse, notched an arrow into his bow, drew back the string, and took careful aim. Then there was a snap and a hiss like a snake. An arrow flew through the air, a straight, simple harbinger of death. Hansel watched it all the way to his chest, to exactly where his heart was. It buried itself there. He felt a searing bolt of pain and fell to the forest floor. When the duke and his hunting party returned to his castle, his huntsmen set to work skinning the beast. It was to be skinned and beheaded and mounted as a trophy upon the duke's wall. But the huntsmen skinning the beast began to gape. One sprang away from the creature in horror and in fear. Another took his place only to drop his knife. Finally, the task was left to a grizzled old man who bared his teeth and steadily, carefully finished the skinning. A great crowd had gathered, and so there was a murmur among them, a murmur of shock and surprise when the old man finished the job, for beneath that beastly skin was another layer of skin, human skin. And beneath that beastly form was another form, a human form, the blood-soaked form of a boy. Carefully, the old man peeled away the hide and fur from around the head and neck of the beast, and after a few more minutes... He dropped his knife. He stepped back saying, I will cut no more. He's breathing. What we need is for someone to kill the beast and give us new life as new creatures. And this is what Yahweh Elion did and he does as the Father adopts men and women and children through Jesus in the Holy Spirit. St. Paul writing in Galatians chapter 2 says, I've been crucified with Christ. And as our call to worship said this morning, and as St. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Yahweh Elion has revealed himself as creator, and in his steadfast love and in his faithfulness, he reveals himself as the one who can recreate. And so two concluding thoughts this morning. First, Yahweh Elion, Yahweh Most High, is alone worthy of worship and praise as he alone works out his steadfast love for the salvation of sinful human beings. In the sending of the Son and the sending of the Spirit, the Father turns homo brutus, beast men, into homo novus, new men. 
And so it is indeed good to worship him. And second, those who have experienced the steadfast love of God for deliverance are in turn enlisted and enrolled into a mission of proclamation and witness. What St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is a ministry of reconciliation. That we too might be used by God to introduce beast men into the one who will make them new men. That we might be used by God to proclaim, to declare that the Lord is upright, that he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. The new life, the life of a new human, is to be poured out in the worship and service of Yahweh Elion, the one who has created and the one who recreates in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And that worship of God is for our good, but it is for His glory. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and we give you thanks. You are creator and you are redeemer, the recreator. We praise you for life in Jesus. We praise you that in Jesus the Holy Spirit is poured out and we are transformed. That We are new creations in Christ. We pray that we would worship you, serve you, and honor you. And that in our lives and in our ministries, Jesus may be exalted and proclaimed. We pray this for his glory and in his name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to the preaching of the word by singing.